Well, I'd like us uh, to look at Matthew's Gospel tonight. I know I read from uh, the book of Revelation, and you were probably anticipating that I was going to preach from the book of Revelation in chapter 12. But hopefully uh, we'll be able to uh, say something about that a little later. But I'd like us to look at uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, and verses uh, 13 to 20. I'll just read those verses. Uh, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. It's interesting, isn't it, that the the last verse there that uh, Jesus tells his disciples not to tell anybody that he was Jesus the Christ. This really is a confirmation of Jesus' recognition of what the apostle Peter claims at that particular time when he asked him, who do men say that I am? And they go through a whole catalog of things. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And he said that you are Jesus. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's one of those rare occasions when Jesus gives confirmation to the position and to the belief of those who look to him. Sometimes his enemies would come and try to chase him up and tell him, uh, you know, if you are the Christ, tell us. This was the position of the Sanhedrin at the time. They wanted to know who Jesus was, and they wanted him to make some kind of confession in order they could condemn him. But very often in times like that, he never confessed who he was. But here you have this clear declaration that he were to tell nobody that he was Christ, that he was the Son of the living God, that he was the Jesus, the Messiah, who was to come. And what you find with Jesus is that he has always been a controversial figure, not only in the time in which he lived, but down through the ages, people have had different perceptions and conceptions concerning who he is. And there have been different views that have been propagated and uh, set before people regarding who Jesus is. And in his own day, when he was there performing all these miracles that were being performed at that particular time, what you find is when, you know, the people were looking at him, they were clearly confused in their own minds as to what to say about this man. He was performing all these miracles. He was doing so many great things. But yet, for all of that, what was they were to conclude about him? And it's quite clear that there was mass confusion at that particular time. Different people had different views. In verse 14, we read, some say that you're John the Baptist. John had been beheaded. 
some Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. There was this idea that he could have been one of any one of these people. You know, there was this mass confusion, as they say, the, you know, in the debate and the conversation that was going on about Jesus, there wasn't any certainty with regards to who he was. And there wasn't any, you know, agreement between all of the people as to their view of Jesus. But the point is this, when he's talking to the Apostle Peter, but he says, but who do you say that I am? And this is the question, really, that is challenging to us this evening, isn't it? Who do we say that Jesus is? Who do we think that he is? This is the most important thing. Upon this question rests our souls in what we believe about who Jesus is. The conception of who he is is so highly important that we find ourselves in this place, in this position, that salvation is determined by our belief in who Jesus is. I mean, if we were to go out on the streets in Clinic this evening and uh, we were to ask people, you know, well, who do you think Jesus is? What would they answer us? Some might say to us, isn't it, who are you talking about, you know, we... Never heard of anybody called Jesus. That's the sad implication of where we find ourselves today, isn't it? Some people have never heard or some people have never thought about who Jesus is. Then others might say, well, yeah, I know. I've heard that uh, there was a man called Jesus who lived about 2,000 years ago. That he died at a place called Calvary. Yeah, I know about that. We can say all sorts of things about him, can't we? You know, if people were to write articles about him, they'd say, well, you know, this man Jesus, he was a good man. Look at the historical references to him, the miracles that he performed, the things that he did. He was a great teacher when he was there in the Sermon on the Mount. He taught people how they should live and how others should benefit from the ways in which they live. He was a great man. And then some might say, well, yeah, he was the founder of a new religion. You know, he came along and he established a new religion in the world which has been propagated down through the ages. And they would come to all kinds of ideas about him. But would they come to any fixed conclusion as to the reality of who Jesus is? Because here was a man who, representing the other disciples, had this firm conviction in his own heart and in his own soul about who Jesus is. When Jesus says to him, but who do you say that I am? Here's the challenge, isn't it? And we should all challenge ourselves, isn't it? And his perception and his understanding of who Jesus is, is that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now it's interesting to see as well, isn't it, that there is a comparison made between what Jesus says of himself and what the Apostle Peter says. When Jesus speaks to him, the question that he asks him in verse 13, who do men say that I am, isn't it? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, he uses the term the Son of Man, isn't it? But when the Apostle Peter speaks about him, he says to him that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a difference when... Jesus was saying, here I am, physically before you, the Son of Man. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? But when 
Peter wants to declare who Jesus is, he elevates and he takes Jesus from humankind and elevates and lifts him up, not to being simply the Son of Man, but to being Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a picture, isn't it, that here was Jesus talking about his human nature and living in this world, and yet Peter elevates him to become the Son of God. What a wonderful declaration he has, what a perception of who Jesus is. And this is the problem with people today. They fail to realize and to understand who Jesus actually is. They fail to realize that he is more than just a man who was born over 2,000 years ago, who lived in this world and who died at Calvary. They need to understand far, far more about him than that, that he was one who is described here as being the son of the living God. In other words, the apostle lifts him up to bring him into this place and into this position that he himself possesses the very same nature as God himself. He is the son of the living God. He possesses the very same nature whom Father possesses in the same way in which we possess the nature of our Father. And so the earth is the perception of the Apostle Peter that he sees Jesus as being far, far more than some mere man. Even the greatest of the prophets that they were arguing over at this particular point in time, that even they, like John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah, and some other prophet, he is far greater and far superior to them. He is the Son of God. And it's important, isn't it, that we realize this, because upon this fact rests our own salvation in realizing who Jesus is. The wonderful fact that he is Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus here tells him, doesn't he? He wants to show to him now, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Something has happened to him whereby he comes to understand something that isn't of human origin. It's not flesh and blood has done this. It's not teaching. It's not mere human understanding or learning or teaching. But something has happened to him whereby God himself has come and opened his eyes to see and to perceive who Jesus is. And this is that internal work that God does within a soul to bring them to that place and to that position to see the uniqueness of who Jesus is. That he is unique in this state and in this condition that he is the Son of God himself. And so Jesus wants to say, look, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So from that very point, he wants that the establishment of his church is going to be built, not upon Peter, as the Roman Catholics teach, but built upon this statement that Peter makes, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How often do you find in the Scriptures that Jesus is very often described as being the foundation, you know, upon which everything else rests? The church of Jesus Christ is built upon who He is. And the thing about this is that Jesus here says concerning Himself that I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, if you just separate all of this, we've got a builder here, haven't we, in Jesus. We've got a building that's being built in the church. And we've also got those who are blessed and blind who are mentioned as well in these particular verses. But the thing is this, isn't it? That here is a, a building that's going to be built, but the builder himself is no other than Jesus himself. That he has taken upon himself to be the executor of God's plan and purpose, and he is the one who's going to be the executor of performing this work and building the church. He himself designates himself as a builder. But before all of that takes place, of course, is that if you know anything about the building trade, and I know a little bit about it, but if you know anything about the building trade, you know that before the builder can start building, he must have some preconceived idea of what's to be built, and that is usually conceived and written down in the form of a plan, a drawing that is made, a plan that is drawn to show what building is to be constructed. You know, you don't just turn up on site and you say to the guy in the machine, oh yeah, come over here, dig a hole there, and we're going to put some concrete in there, and then we're going to start building a building. You know, the builder looks at the drawing, and he measures up what he wants to measure, and he does everything according to the plan and according to the drawing. And that plan and that drawing, of course, has been conceived by someone. Generally, we tend to think that it's an architect who has done the drawing. And so there is this architect who has sat down and thought for a moment about what kind of building does he want to build, and then he starts drawing the drawing. And he works from that drawing the plan and the perception of what he has in his own mind. And then all of that scheme, as it were, starts to come together, and he draws this drawing, and then he hands the drawing over to the builder, and he says, this is what I want you to build. And in the very same way, this is exactly what God has done. God has what is described as his eternal plan and purpose, that Jesus himself has become the executor of that plan and purpose. He is the one who is going to work that purpose out. He is the one who's going to fulfill that plan. He is the one who's going to be involved in it. He is the, the guy on the site, as it were, who's going to control all the events that surround the building of this building. And that's the wonderful thing about Jesus, isn't it? He says, I will build my church. I will build it, he says. And, you know, when you start thinking about how he was going to build it, what, what is necessary for a building to proceed and to come to completion and fulfillment? Well, on the part of the builder, there's several things that he requires, doesn't he? First of all, he re requires determination. And Jesus got that determination. He says, I will build my church. There's nothing more certain, nothing more sure than the fact that I will build my church. I've set my goal. This is my aim. This is my plan. This is my purpose, that I am going to execute the will of God, and I will build that church. It's like when Jesus, you know, it tells us in Luke, doesn't it, that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew what lay ahead. He knew that Calvary was there. He knew what he was going to suffer and all the things that he was going to endure. And yet for all of that, it says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was determined in his own heart and in his own mind that nothing was going to stop him from getting to Jerusalem and going to Calvary. Nothing at all. He was predetermined to do this in his own mind, in his own thinking. He was by this idea that he must go to Jerusalem. 
And in that same his determination in executing the plan and purpose of God. Not only in dying at Calvary, but in carrying on the eternal plan of God in building this church. The other thing, of course, that's necessary for him to complete that work is that he's going to need resources. The resources uh, for a builder is because is what? It's not just the materials on the site, is it? What's the greatest enemy of all builders? Recession, usually. <laughs> Nobody buys houses. Many companies go bankrupt. Why? Because they lack the resources. Once recession comes, very often, and I've lived through a couple of recessions now, but very often what you find is that banks cut off all resources. In other words, they stop the flow of money. Basically, the builder can't carry on building whatever he's building at that time. And so he goes into bankruptcy, runs out of resources. Well, you know, with Jesus, it's never the case, is it? How can Jesus ever run out of resources? He is the son of the living God. You know, when Jesus performs this work, isn't it? You know, what does he say? He says, you know, if you want to build a house, he says, you know, you need to check, first of all, that you've got the resources to complete that house. He says, nobody goes and starts building a house unless he knows that he's got sufficient funds to build that house and complete the work. And in the very same way, Jesus is going to complete this work because he knows that he has the resources. When Jesus wanted to give that great declaration, isn't it, at the end of this particular book, the Great Commission, as it's called, in uh, Matthew 28, and there in verse 18, where he says, isn't it, you know, all power, all authority is given unto me. Go, he says, and preach the gospel to every creature. What's going to happen? You are to go out, he says, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just to make disciples of all nations, all peoples, he said. And lo, I am with you always. All power, all authority rests in me. How can anybody stop someone who has absolute power? How can anybody resist this person who has all power over all peoples, in all countries, in all nations, as absolute power. When Jesus ascended up on high, what happened? All power, all authority was given unto him. Angels and principalities and all powers were made subject to him. He has absolute authority. So how can he not finish and complete his work? It's an impossibility. And not only that, when you think about it, when he says, and lo, I am with you always unto the end of the age, he is talking about the situation, isn't it? That not only have I started it and I will get to that state where I will complete it. I am going to be with my church and with my people. I'm going to be with you, he says to his disciples, and to the very end of the age. There's never going to be a time when Jesus is not going to be with his church and with his people. And the intention and the plan and the purpose that he has is to complete this work. I will build my church. He's so determined to bring that to fulfillment. I will build my church. But you see, the building itself, when you think of it for a moment, what kind of building is he building anyway? When you think of the building, it's not a physical building, is it? Like this building that we're in now. 
It's not like that, is it? It's not a physical and a tangible building. But when Jesus starts to speak about this building, the building is a construction made of people. His church is made of the fabric of people like you and I. Human people who, like the apostle himself, have had our eyes opened to see and to behold something of the glory of who Jesus is. Do you remember Paul when he's writing to the church in Corinth? He says that we have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Something has happened to us. Illumination has come to our minds and to our understanding. Why is it that we perceive Jesus to be the Son of the living God when others have failed to do it? They're blind and ignorant to who Jesus is. And yet, for all of that, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood, has not revealed this unto you, but my Father. God has done something to him, and God has done something to us. If we realize the true nature of who Jesus is. And he has opened our eyes and we have seen something of his glory. We've understood something of this. When the apostle was writing his first letter to the churches in Asia Minor, in chapter 2 and verses 4, he tells us like this, isn't it, that we have built up a spiritual house. You know? And what have we done? We are built upon Christ. This rock, you know, this foundation that the builders rejected, this one, this Jesus, and God has laid him as the foundation, and God is building us up upon him. And this is Jesus saying, I will build my church. And we are integrated the one with the other. <laughs> we are all coupled together, like when you build building. There's an interlocking. Bricks today, but stone then. But there is this interlocking between all of the people of God. There is this union that draws us and unites us, the one with the other. And he says, I will build my church. Got a vested interest in that church, hasn't he? Because what is it? He says, it's nobody else's church, but it's my church. It's my church. I'm going to build my church. Can I tell you that any builder wanting to build a house for himself, right or when sometimes we sell houses that we've lived in, we've built for ourselves, what you find is that people want to buy it. Why? Because they think, oh, if he is the builder and built his own house, it's going to be the best of workmanship, the best of materials. And so they want to buy that house because they're anticipating that it's going to be better than any other house. Jesus said, I've got a vested interest in this. This is my church. This is my building. This is something that is part and parcel of me. This belongs to me. And I'm building it because it's mine. And when I'm building it, he says, I am building it as the most fabulous building that I can possibly make. And this is what Jesus is doing at this moment of time. He is constantly working. There is a work that he is performing that goes the time in which he came into this world right to the very end of time, when that last person is brought into the kingdom of God. That is what is happening at this moment of time. 
Souls are being saved. People are being added to the church. The church is growing. The church is flourishing. Now, it might not seem like that when we try to perceive it in this nation in which we live at this moment of time. When we see the difficulties that are arisen because of this situation in which we find ourselves, the apathy, the atheism, the opposition to God. But the thing is this, that his church has been growing from the very first time. But the thing is this, there is an enemy, isn't there, to this church, where Jesus says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, or the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Triumphant is this declaration that Jesus is making here. It's one, a declaration of the certainty of this church being finalized and being finished off. That's why I read to you in the book of Revelation, isn't it? That chapter there that tells us about Jesus and uh, how he was conceived and brought into this world. Let me just run you quickly through the chapter. It says like this, and there was a great sign in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars, then being with child. Who is this child? She cried out in labor and in pain to give birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. Well, what is this all about? Well, it's all about Jesus coming into the world, wasn't it? Here is, you know, these 12 stars, this position, this situation was at the time. The 12 tribes of Israel, you know, the picture that being perceived, the Old Testament church. Here is Jesus who had been prophesied that he was coming into the world. And here is this conception and this coming of birth of the Lord Jesus. The child was to be born. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Here's the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. Who was that? Here was Jesus being lifted up and elevated into that place and into that position. But then it goes on to say like this, isn't it? And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. In other words, here was the final battle. Here was the battle that was fought, and he was cast out of heaven, cast into this world. Here was his angels with him, who become demonic powers. Here is the fall of Satan. And then it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Here were people who were so committed in their belief in overcoming the powers that were raging war against them, against the church, and they overcame him 
by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. Here was their faith being enacted and lived out in their lives. And they didn't love their lives even unto death, those who had been martyred for the name of Christ, and who have been martyred since. But let me just go on to verse 13 and following. It says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Now this is the church carrying on past Christ. This is the church being built now at this moment of time. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. You see there's an association between Old and New Testament here. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness of her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. In other words, here is the attack, the onslaught of the powers of darkness upon the church and upon the people of God. And then, we just quote the last verse. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he what, what? He went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, here is a war that is raging in this world at this moment of time. The powers of darkness raging war against the church and against the people of God. Yet Jesus, in the midst of all of that, says, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In other words, in the midst of this conflict, in the midst of this opposition, here is Jesus still continuing to build his church. The church has been under attack down through the ages over the last 2,000 years. It's been under attack both physically and theologically or philosophically. There's always been this battle for the mind to secure people, to draw them away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet for all of that, for all of the persecution that has taken place down through the ages, where it should have been crushed in the first few hundred years, yet the church survives. Who could fight against the Roman Empire? It was this great political power, military power of its day. Who could fight against that? And here was this church being established with 120 people in an upper room. And Jesus says, continue here in Jerusalem until you shall receive power from on high. And then he says, what are you supposed to do when you receive this power? And he says, well, what are you supposed to do is, he says, you're supposed to go out and preach the gospel to all nations, all peoples, you are to go out, he says, and starting here in Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He says, this is your mission. This is what I've commissioned you to do. But I have given you the power and the ability to be able to perform that and to do that. Because I have given to you my Holy Spirit to do that work. And so Jesus is telling them and forewarning them and preparing them for this. But where they should have been crushed, this 120 people, the persecution started straight away, didn't it? You had religious leaders of the day in the Acts of the Apostles. What happens? They try to suppress the gospel. Why? Because they were blind. They didn't realize who Jesus was. They refused to accept 
that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. They were opposed to it. They tried to persecute those who believed in it and who preached it, like the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John. And yet they were all being suppressed like this. But did it stop the work and the growth of the church? And daily was added unto the church, such as should be saved. Day in, day out, people were being saved and added to the church. The growth was phenomenal. Suddenly there was 120, then there's 3,000 plus, and then every day there's more and more being added to it, and consequently you had this permanent growth within the church. And what should have crushed the church should have been the Roman Empire when it raged war against the church and against the people of God, did not suppress the gospel. In actual fact, just before Constantine comes to rule, what you find is that it says like this, that one of the, the governors in a certain part of the world, he says like this, that if we were to take out the Christians out of the empire itself, there wouldn't be enough people in the empire to protect the empire any longer. Such was the phenomenal growth in the 300 years of physical persecution against the church. Could the church be crushed? No, it couldn't. Can it be crushed? No, it can't. Why? Because Jesus has said, I will build my church. I will build it, he says. And I constantly continue to build it. Now, I could go through the history of the church, but I don't want to go through that because I know my time is gone, okay? But the whole point is this, that Peter was blessed with this knowledge, right? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my Father, which is in heaven. And I'm going to give to you, he says, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed. In other words, he was being given power, not in the Roman conception of power, passing down from cleric to cleric, down from generation to generation. But here was the gospel being passed on to the apostle. And through this gospel, people are either liberated or encaptured, as it were. They are there in that state and in that condition where they continue in their blindness, or it liberates them to see and to behold who Jesus is. And it's this perception of who Jesus is that allows people and creates martyrs who are prepared to die for the name of Jesus. Because once the truth has set you free, how can you go back? When you realize who Jesus is, when persecution comes, the persecution is to deny the person of Jesus. But men have suffered, haven't they? To be put to death rather than deny the person of Jesus. I've told you the story of the Huguenots, haven't I? I think a long time ago, so I can tell you again. Try and see if you can remember what I said last time. When we were doing the Florida trip when the children were young, we went to a place called St. Augustine City, which was considered to be the first city in America. And the Spanish... Uh, people who had gone to southern America came to St. Augustine and the soldiers come, get off their ship and they come there and they find that there were Huguenots there. Now Huguenots, for some of you who don't know what Huguenots are, they were French evangelical or French Calvinistic Christians 
who had fled the persecution and had gone to America. And there were 200 of them found, and 200 of them were taken to the beach there and were given the option, either you deny of the faith that you have or lose your heads. That was the option. At the end of the day, 200 heads lay on the, on the, on the beach. None of them were prepared to deny Jesus. Why is that then? Why would 200 of them lay down their lives like that? We've read, haven't we, in the book of Revelation, they love not their lives even unto death. Why were they prepared to do that? Well, for the very same reason that the Lord is saying to Peter, if flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father, this divine illumination so revealed who Jesus is that they could not deny the fact of who Jesus was. And therefore they were prepared to lay down their lives. But the thing is this, isn't it? They, they were blessed of God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are we if we have had our eyes open to see and to realize who Jesus is. We're in that blessed condition whereby salvation has become ours. We've seen who Jesus is. We've come to that living faith and trust in him. And we have known what it is. The keys of heaven have come to us and they have opened the very gates of heaven to us through the gospel. That message of salvation that when we trust in Jesus, all our sins have been forgiven. And when we partake of the communion this night, isn't it? What are we reminding ourselves of? That the foundation of the church itself has been sealed by the blood of Jesus. That his blood certifies to us that he will build his church. And upon this ground, upon the very fact of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, seals for us that blessedness that we shall enjoy with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ. I shall build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And you and I, my friend, are in this construction in this construction at this moment of time, just as one stone upon another stone, until that final day, that completion of the building, when Jesus shall hand it over to his Father. What a glorious day that'll be, and you and I are blessed, and will be blessed, to see that day when Jesus comes.